Let's go to the Gospel of Mark. That's where we have been, so hopefully you have been reading along in Mark. Again, you can always read ahead to what we're going to be talking about. Um, give you kind of a heads up as we head into each week. Today, uh, we'll still be in Mark chapter 1, and we'll be spending 24 hours with Jesus. Um, how many of you um, watched or are familiar with the show, television show, 24? Jack Bauer. Jack Bauer fans out there? Okay, just a few of us. So um, I always enjoyed watching the show 24. It was an action-packed show. Um, I was, but I was always amazed because um, the, the, the premise of the show is all this stuff happens in a 24-hour window for the whole season. And I was amazed the amount of things that could happen in a 24-hour window with Jack Bauer. Uh, I was also always intrigued with the fact that he could get around whatever it was, I think New York City, so easily, with no traffic, he could end up from one point in the city to an entirely different point in the city in a 10-minute window, right? Uh, and uh, knock off about 75 terrorists in the process. And so I was always intrigued with the storyline of 24. And I would think, like, if I could spend 24 hours with anyone, any person, who would that be? And I don't know the answer to that. But it would be intriguing to spend just 24 hours with whatever person is on your list of these are the intriguing people I would like to spend 24 hours with. I'm sure we would discover they're probably more ordinary and mundane uh, than we recognize, no matter who that is. But today we're going to spend 24 hours with Jesus, actually today and uh, next Sunday as well. And so Mark gives us this short collection of scenes in and around the city called Capernaum. At least we believe that's how it's pronounced, Capernaum. Um, the New Testament language is now a dead language, meaning people do not still speak it. Uh, but we believe it was pronounced Capernaum. Um, I had a friend that um, answered the call to ministry kind of later in life, and he was learning how to preach. And I was with him while he was preaching one time, and he referred to Capernaum as Capernaum. Jesus was in Capernaum. And I'm like, Capernaum? Where's Capernaum? And so I never let him live that down from that point forward. Uh, but Jesus is in and around Capernaum. Most New Testament scholars believe that Capernaum was kind of the post-Nazareth residence of Jesus, that he probably had a home um, in Capernaum or, or lived in a community in Capernaum, and in these scenes, we'll cover four of them today, Jesus moves at a very frenzied pace, and it's often earmarked by this word that we've seen in Mark's gospel, and we'll continue to see throughout Mark's gospel, this word immediately, immediately. That's a word of urgency and action that happens at once. And so over and over again, Mark takes us on this very fast-paced, frenzied um, the 24 hours with Jesus. So let's jump in. Um, we'll start with scene one. I'm going to grab my glasses here so I can see the text as I read it. Not just stumble through like I did last week. Um, Mark chapter one, and we'll look at scene one, which is verses 21 and 22 of Mark chapter one. And they, that plural word there, uh, Jesus and his followers at this point, the four of them we saw last week, they went into Capernaum, or Capernaum, and immediately, there's our word, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one 
who had authority and not as the scribes. So in this first scene, again, they, this is Jesus and this inner circle of disciples. At this point, as far as we know, there's four of them, four brothers, Simon and Andrew and James and John. They enter on the Sabbath. So think in terms of the Sabbath would be from um, sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday. And so that was the 24 hours known as the Sabbath. And so on the Sabbath, Jesus enters into the synagogue. When you think of synagogue, think about kind of this assembly hall or this auditorium. And in this assembly hall, the Torah, uh, the Old Testament, uh, particularly Genesis through Deuteronomy, would be read and it would be interpreted, (coughs) expounded upon by the scribes. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, which means he would have been invited to do this. And so by this time in the ministry of Jesus, he is a respected and known teacher. And so he enters into uh, the synagogue to teach. He's an established teacher, known in the community, which means that more than likely he had some type of presence in the um, area of Capernaum. And then the crowd response in this first scene is interesting. They were astonished at his teaching. Uh, the scripture says that he, they were astonished because he taught as one who had authority. I like that word authority. Um, in the original language, it's the word exousia, which seems just like a really cool word, right? That he, he spoke with exousia, with authority, as one having authority. And then Mark includes this little caveat, not as the scribes taught. His teaching was different than the scribes. And so the listeners recognize something out of the ordinary is happening here. A scribe would have been kind of this Torah professor, uh, this teacher, this moralist. Uh, It would be very common practice for a scribe to read the Torah and then to teach. And their teaching would have been primarily comprised of comparing kind of the interpretations of very known and famous rabbis in that day. So that would be the practice of a scribe. The scribe would not have been like a hired professional overseeing the synagogue um, um, pastor, for lack of a better term. A scribe would be oftentimes um, even people that worked other jobs, but people that, again, read the Torah, interpreted the Torah, and then they compared the various teachings of well-known, recognized rabbis in that day. But the text here says Jesus is teaching by his own authority, exousia, his own authority. And notice Mark's focus here is on the authority of Jesus and not the content of Jesus. On the authority. We have no content of what Jesus was teaching in this text. We only have that he was teaching with authority. So here's what that means. Jesus is not merely weighing in on the various interpretations of various rabbis. He's speaking with divine authority. And the result of that is the the crowds are astonished. This word astonished means to be shocked, to be surprised. They've never heard anything like this. A rabbi, a teacher that is teaching with such authority, and he's teaching authoritatively from God. He's not just comparing interpretations of other rabbis. He's speaking as if he's speaking for God, speaking with authority. So that's scene one. Things change quickly. Scene two, pick up in verse 23. And here's our word, immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, 
What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And again, they were all amazed. So they, that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. What a fascinating scene. While Jesus is teaching, Jesus is abruptly interrupted by an outburst from a man possessed, the text says, by an unclean spirit. That means a profane spirit, a demonic spirit, a Demon. Now I have to think in this moment, like this didn't happen in modern kind of American style churches. Can you imagine if it did? If in the middle of my teaching, suddenly someone pops up and begins to yell and scream, right? Yell things, go crazy. I don't even want to know what would happen. I know we have some people that are... Uh, We'll just say um, security-minded in our gathering today. I'm not sure the guy would make it out healthy. We'll put it that way, right? But there's no security team, I guess, at the synagogue. This guy pops up. There's no one dragging him out. He's not taken out. They're not, like, packing heat, which I don't know what that meant in Jesus' day, like a knife or a sword or a spirit or something. Uh, there, there's no, like, you know, there's no one carrying I guess in the synagogue. Uh, so he just, he just pops up and just this interruption, this, this outbreak in the midst of Jesus' teaching. And the phrase that he uses here that we translate, what have you to do with us, is literally what is there between us, between you and me? Have you come to destroy us? He says this is a combative challenge against Jesus. Basically the demon is saying you are my enemy. And we are going to do battle. Now the demon identifies Jesus by name. He calls him one Jesus of Nazareth, which refers to his earthly name. He calls him the Holy Son of God, which refers to his supernatural name. Interesting in the Gospel of Mark, the only time thus far that Jesus has been referred to as the Holy One, Son of God, is by the Father at his baptism, remember? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The second identity of Jesus as the Holy Son of God is by a demon. <coughs> so he identifies Jesus by name. Now this idea of calling Jesus by name in that day would have been kind of a power move. An attempt to gain the upper hand in the confrontation. Think in terms of two prize fighters or UFC fighters that are going to go head to head. And they're trash talking. This is your mama language that he's using. He's trying to get the upper hand verbally on Jesus by calling him by name. There's a fight that's about to go down. The demon is trash talking Jesus. But let me give you a heads up. This clash between Jesus and one of Satan's minions is a no contest, no contest. This is ant meat human, right? It's a twisting of the shoe and it's over. This is a no contest event. 
Jesus is the inbreaking of God's heavenly kingdom into the earthly realm, and he has supreme authority over both the natural world and the supernatural world. The conflict between God's kingdom and Satan's dominion is no contest. Jesus, you see in the text, he simply just rebukes the demon. As a matter of fact, our translations here are kind of mild. When, it, when it, we're, we translate it like, be quiet, the, the actual language here is like, muzzle up. And if we want to put it into our vernacular, like, shut up. That's the strength which Jesus speaks here. He just rebukes him like, be quiet. And commands the demon to exit the man. And guess what? The demon complies. He obeys. He simply does what Jesus says. And there's no like Harry Potter spells or incantations happening here. There's no tug of war between the heavenly and the demonic. There's no like thumb wrestling to see who's going to win, right? Jesus just commands and the demon obeys. We'll see in chapter 3 that Jesus uses, he's talking about demons, that he uses this language in chapter 3 that he enters into a house and just binds up the strong man. That he just comes and binds up the strong man and has complete control. And that's what happens here. Jesus just binds up the strong man. He speaks and the demon obeys. Listen closely. Whatever dark spiritual influence is at work in your soul is no match for the God who lives inside of you. We'll come back to that in a moment. The people are astonished. What is going on here? Who is this guy? He's teaching by his own authority. He's exercising demons with a single command. He's displaying supreme authority over the teaching of the scribes, kind of the temporal world. He's displaying supreme authority over the spiritual world, over demons themselves. As you might expect, verse 28, Jesus goes viral. At once, his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The fame of Jesus is spread everywhere. He goes viral. His fame spreads quickly. Capernaum itself, most New Testament historians believe, was probably around 10,000 people. The area surrounding region of Galilee would have been much more, thousands and thousands of people. And the fame of Jesus spreads quickly. Scene three, still in a 24-hour window, 29. Here's our word. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, look at the sequence here, he came, he took her by the hand, he lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So a stone's throw away from the synagogue is Simon and Andrew's house. Now, let me explain what that looked like in a 
New Testament context, a home in that day and age was kind of this insula type apartments where extended families would often live together. And so you're talking sometimes 40 to 60 people uh, that were living in community that were all family, that were tied together somehow through family. And so in this kind of insula style apartments, um, you have in-laws and cousins and uncles and uh, all brothers and sisters all kind of living together in this tight-knit community. I, I tremble at the thought, I have to be honest. But that's how culture was designed in that day, kind of this commune approach. And so Peter's mother-in-law was sick with the fever. Remember, the Gospel of Mark, we believe, is heavily influenced by who? Peter. So Peter includes this story. His mother-in-law is sick with a fever. Jesus enters, takes her by the hand, raises her up, and she's healed. The fever leaves. Now, I'm not quite sure what the true miracle is here. Either the fever leaves or Jesus is willing to heal a mother-in-law. Not sure which one is the true miracle. My mom is a mother-in-law, not to me, but to my my wife. So there's a lot of good mother-in-laws out there. Can I get an amen? amen? All right. Amen for me too. Important. There is no recorded instance in Jewish literature, outside of Scripture literature, of a rabbi taking the hand of a woman. It was considered taboo in that culture in every regard. For a spiritual leader to take the hand of a woman, much less a feverish woman. Yet as we will see time and time again in Mark's gospel, Jesus crosses these falsely erected boundaries, these social boundaries that were intended to marginalize and isolate certain people in this kind of misguided effort to maintain some type of false purity code. That's why those laws were put in place. And Jesus comes on the scene showing compassion and touching all the wrong people. He touches lepers. He touches those considered unclean. He touches the dead. He touches a feverish woman. The reason those misguided purity codes were in place, again, was a, listen, fear of corruption. That the pure might be made impure. If a pure Someone pure touched someone impure. What did the code say? The pure became impure. The clean became unclean. Jesus, the holy son of God, arrives on the scene and the pure touches the impure and makes the impure pure. The clean touches the dirty and the dirty becomes clean at the touch of the son of God. Jesus reverses the purity code. He makes the unholy holy. He makes the broken whole. Mark even slips in some resurrection language here. That he raises her up. He reminds his readers that every healing, every exorcism is resurrection power on display. As he raises up the feverish mother-in-law. 
Now, as a sign of her healing, Simon's mother-in-law begins to serve up refreshments. I don't know what that looked like. Was it like queso and chips? Was it pig in the blankets? Was it the little barbecue weenies? I mean, those places got to have a place in heaven, right? Those little, you know what I'm talking about? The little weenies are like barbecue sauce. You make them in the crock pot. Like, those things have to be in heaven. I'm not sure what she's serving up, but she is serving refreshment. She begins to serve the people. Now, let me pause here and say she does not do this because that's what a woman is supposed to do in that culture. Listen, she does this because serving is what a disciple does. Jesus teaches later in the gospel that serving is the indicator of greatness. Jesus says later in chapter 10, I did not come to be served, but to what? To serve, to give my life away. Scene four, our last scene for today. 32, that evening at sundown, what happened at sundown? Sabbath came to a close. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. I love the dramatic effect that Mark puts on this. The whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. And he cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. We'll come back, I believe, next week to this kind of Why is Jesus always telling everybody to be quiet about who he is? We'll address, we'll talk about that next week. So Jews were forbidden from working or traveling on the Sabbath, but as the Sabbath day draws to a close at sundown, Mark says the whole city brings their sick. They're demonically oppressed to be healed by Jesus. Don't miss this. Jesus is available after hours. I work a job outside of city churches, most of you know. My time to be done with my job every day is 5 o'clock-ish. And I'm not available at 6, I can tell you. I'm not available at 7. I'm not available at 5.01. There's processes in place to deal with things from 5.01 later. I'm not available for after-hours consultation. Jesus, in this 24 hours is available after hours. We sense this kind of desperation in Mark's dramatic language. All the people, the whole city at the door. We sense this kind of drama that Mark is creating. And what he's saying is that for too long, the people have suffered. They have suffered under the oppression of spirits. They have suffered under sickness. But now Jesus, the Messiah, the Deliverer, he has arrived. And he is full of compassion and mercy. And he heals and he attends to the sick. And he liberates and he restores the oppressed. Because that That's who he is. He does not turn away the diseased. He does not shun the outcast. He does not refuse the marginalized and the oppressed. He does not silence the disruptive. He does not run from the sick and the sinful. He 
welcomes them. He shows compassion. He touches the untouchable. He loves the unlovely because that's who he is. And listen, that is who he still is. Jesus does not go looking for patience here. He's not on a healing campaign. He's not on an exorcism promotion tour. People in need are drawn to him. They come to him, and he does not turn them away. He welcomes them, embraces them, touches them, and he does it after hours. And Ash can tell you, after a day of preaching and teaching, I'm tanked. I'm like, wake me up in two and a half hours and do not bother me in the meantime or you might get snapped at. Jesus is working after hours. He's been teaching in the synagogue. He's cast a demon out of a man. He's healed a mother-in-law. And here he is after hours. This multitudes of people are bringing their sick and oppressed to Jesus at the door. And he's available to each one of them, showing compassion and mercy, restoration, forgiveness. I don't know if you have watched any of the, uh, the series about Jesus called The Chosen. Um, it's kind of a unique twist on the Jesus story. I don't usually recommend a lot of Jesus movies or shows because most of them are cheesy, cheesy Jesus. Uh, but this one's actually pretty good. It's, um, I mean, a lot of it is, is not in the text, so they're kind of adding to the story. But it's very dramatic and very telling, and it does show kind of a certain side of Jesus that maybe we don't think about. And one of the episodes that I found very intriguing, during the episode, it seemed a little boring. It was mainly the disciples all kind of sitting around and figuring each other out, while Jesus is at this kind of distance place healing and ministering to people. And they're all like, who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong, I like you, I don't like you. And there's this whole conversation happening um, for the entire episode. And at the very end, Jesus comes stumbling into the camp, exhausted and tired and unable to stand. Because he's been healing and showing compassion and mercy to the needy. And there's a moment where the disciples kind of look at each other and think, what are we doing? He's given his everything. And that's kind of what I picture here. It's who he is, and it's who he still is. And I'll tell you, like, this hit me this week. Like, how are we doing as a church? As followers of Jesus, are people in need drawn to us? Are they welcomed? Are they loved by us? Do I make the marginalized feel valued? Do we display compassion and kindness to the disruptive, to the banished, to the outcast, to the downtrodden? I'm not talking about in this kind of I feel sorry for this person kind of way how we excuse giving a dollar or saying a kind word because we feel sorry for the person. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about are we showing the compassion of Jesus in a way that makes them feel loved and valued? 
Are we known for our healing, our restoration, our mercy? Like we see firsthand here and throughout Mark's gospel how Jesus interacts with the isolated and the disregarded. And now, City Church, we are his hands and feet. We're his hands and feet. And I pray that City Church is a place that's known for its compassion. I pray that our homes are places known for welcoming the marginalized, welcoming those who are different than us. Man, it's just me, Mac. I'm talking to me, preaching to me. So let me give you a final thought from this text on this idea of this demonic man. So we, we tend to read stories like this, and we relegate them to some that happens in dark third world countries, or um, we relegate it to some horror movie, right? <laughs> some demon possession movie uh, that some people like and some people refuse to watch because it's demon related. You know, it's the whole spinning head, Rosemary's Baby kind of stuff. So we, we tend to take this idea and we relegate it to those arenas. But let, let's talk about, for a minute, about demonic influence in the everyday rhythm of life, which is where this was happening. You see, I believe that demonic influence happens in the unremarkable more often than in the spectacular. For example... Scripture speaks of Satan imprisoning our hearts when, listen, we refuse to forgive, when we harbor bitterness, when we conceal anger, when we become jealous. Here's a classic example, one of the first stories of the Bible, Cain and Abel. If you remember the story, Cain grows angry with God because God looked with favor on Abel's sacrifice. And he approaches God in all this anger and bitterness, and here's what the Lord says. Why are you angry? Why is your face downward, downcast? If what you do is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, listen to this language. Sin is crouching at your door. Listen, it desires to have you. I mean, what's he addressing here? He's addressing the anger and the bitterness in Caleb's spirit. We know Caleb goes on after this to, to murder, to kill Abel. But God uses this possession language. Sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to possess you, to, to have you. I mean, why in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus constantly prioritizing matters of the heart, right? He's addressing anger and lust and this kind of payback mentality because spiritual battles most often happen in these internal arenas of life. 
Like, think about how irrationally we tend to behave when we cultivate bitterness, when we cultivate lust or anger or resentment. Think about how blinded we are by jealousy or revenge or greed or power. These are the things that blind us and cause us to act foolishly. We can't think straight in those moments. We do stupid stuff, don't we? We get aggressive and protective and defensive, and as a result, families are divided and churches are split and relationships shatter and lives are wounded. And there's a reason that Paul instructs us, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And we, we throw that out there, but here's the rest of what Paul says in that, that verse. Do not give the devil a foothold. He pleads, do not allow the devil to gain a foothold, implying that these type heart issues like anger is where we are most often vulnerable. It's where Satan wants to gain a foothold in your life. More than likely, we do not have to worry about someone standing up and disrupting and screaming out because they're demon-possessed. Where we deal with the demonic influence in everyday life or in these matters. Where Satan is seeking to gain a foothold in life. Think about Ephesians 6, where we are instructed to put on the armor of God. And man, this, Paul used some pretty abrasive language there. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Like we read that and we think we're just removed from that, don't we? Like that doesn't apply to me. That's not every day. Paul puts it into every day. Put on the armor of God because there's a war happening. The schemes of the devil. And he warns that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? Spiritual forces. Dark forces. Listen to me, City Church. You are under attack. Our homes are under attack. Our lives are under attack. Our hearts are under attack. Our souls are under attack. Our minds are under attack. Our marriages are under attack. And it's not because some demon-possessed guy pops up in our service. That's not where Satan's seeking to gain a foothold in our lives. Paul then defines the armor of God with these type of words. Truth and righteousness and peace and faith and prayer and scripture. When Paul says like armor up, he uses this Again, internal defense mechanism of be at peace and arm yourself with the gospel, with matters of the heart and the soul. Our everyday struggles against darkness take place in the ordinary, not in the spectacular. So stay on alert. Arm yourself spiritually. Not by trying harder, not by working harder, but with the good news of the gospel of Jesus that draws us 
Repent. Trust. Turn from your sin. Turn to me. These are the marks of the kingdom that we've been talking about for weeks. As we live in the everyday rhythms of the spiritual warfare and battlefield that is happening around us, that we, we arm ourselves by turning away from us and turning to him, to the gospel of Jesus. We just sang about it. And here's the good news announcement of the gospel. Hear me clearly in light of what I just said. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. It's no contest. God has taken up residence inside of you. And as we see in this day in the life of Jesus, our Savior is not removed. He is not aloof. He is not distant. He is engaged in the trenches of life. He's in the synagogue. He's in the homes. He's on the streets. He cares. He is filled with compassion and mercy. He's not punching the clock at five o'clock. And the cross and the, the resurrection declare the battle has already been won. We just sang it. Satan does not win. All the demonic forces of the world flee at a mere spoken word by Jesus. And that resurrection power resides inside of us as we live in the everyday grind of life. So lean into him, rest in him, trust in him 24 hours a day, every day with Jesus in our homes, at our work, in our marriages, in our schools, in our parenting. We lean into him in the spiritual battlefields of life. We spend 24 hours with Jesus and we are reminded every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every year for the rest of our lives. He is with us. He lives inside of us. He cares for us. He has compassion and kindness and greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The battle has been won. 